still following um, studies of the life of Peter as in the Gospels. And we're coming to him here along with another couple of disciples experiencing uh, the transfiguration of Jesus on this unnamed mountain. Peter, John and James. Did Jesus have an inner circle of disciples? Well, the answer is yes and no. No in the sense that uh, we cannot think of Jesus um, displaying more regard or affection for uh, any one disciple over and above another. And yet, yes, in the sense in which uh, we find Peter and James and John taken by Jesus specifically into certain circumstances that they came to experience in order for their benefit. And it's most interesting looking at the incidents in the Gospels where you find Jesus taking Peter and James and John with him. Um, For example, in chapter 8 and at verse 51, you'll find Jesus there um, taking Peter and James uh, and John with him. And how in that particular uh, raising of this uh, daughter of Jairus, we read there that uh, they went to the house and were told, your daughter is dead, Um, do not trouble the teacher anymore. This this is the message that was received. But Jesus on on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the mother and father of the child. All were weeping and mourning for her. Then he proceeded um, to actually raise her back to life. And then you go to Gethsemane, where Jesus in Mark 14, and the account you have in Mark's Gospel there, um, Mark chapter 14, uh, tells us that Peter and James and John specifically were chosen by Jesus uh, to go with him into that environment and to that experience of seeing Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and the sufferings that he experienced there as he prayed so earnestly and so deeply to the Father in regard to the cup the Father had given him to drink of. That is the suffering and the death, of course, included. Um, that's uh, chapter uh, 14 of Mark and verse 33. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is sorrowful even unto death. And what you find in this passage in Luke chapter 9 with regard to uh, the conversation, as we'll see in a moment, that took place between Moses and Elijah, it included the subject of death, the death of Jesus. In Gethsemane, Jesus specifically said, My soul is sorrowful even unto death. And in the context of the raising of Jairus' daughter, death was obviously in that house, and Jesus dealt with it in the way that brought the daughter of Jairus back to life. In other words, in these three incidents, the subject of death, the topic of death, the fact of death, is very much a feature of what he took Peter and James and John into. And we've been saying since we began the studies of Peter's life that one of the features of it is that you see Peter learning more and more about this Jesus, about the Lord, through the incidents and through the experiences that Jesus took him through. His experience of who Jesus is 
what Jesus is like, what he is as a person, what he's in the world to do, how he relates to him personally, all of these things increase, uh, and knowledge of these things in Peter increase as, as he goes through these various experiences. And we understand from these three incidents I've mentioned that um, one of the reasons or the purpose that Jesus took these three, including Peter, into these circumstances is that they would learn more about Jesus himself in relation to death, not just his own death as it would be on the cross, but Christ's overcoming of death so that that would be effective in the life of his people. That he had himself in himself this great power, this capacity, this authority over death. So that when he spoke to death, in the case of those who were dead, death had to release its hold, as it were. And this is part of what Peter is learning here as well. As he listens to this conversation between Moses and Elijah and Jesus, because it involves in the conversation the death of Jesus himself. We'll see that under the word departure. And so you notice here that Peter is to the fore, although there, uh, there are uh, three disciples, Peter, James, and John, it's really Peter that uh, takes up uh, our attention because that's what the passage focuses on. It's Peter that comes um, to be mentioned Peter and those who were with him and then Peter said to Jesus and then Jesus uh, responds uh, or God responds from the cloud this is my son so all of that really is directed in the passage specifically to Peter and to Peter's benefit what did he see what did he learn what did he hear what was this incident about as far as Peter was concerned? And what does it mean for ourselves tonight that you read about Jesus being transfigured? What is the impact of that? What is the importance of that? What does that tell us about our Lord and Savior? And how do we relate it to our own personal need of him and how he fits with our circumstances in life? Well, we'll look at the three things. Firstly, the transfiguration itself. Uh, briefly, and then the conversation involving Elijah and Moses, and then the declaration uh, by God from this cloud, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. The transfiguration, first of all, says here, they went up to the mountain to pray, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Now, don't pass over these words. They went up to the mountain to pray, and as he was praying. Uh, because we perhaps tend to just move on too quickly from that, to look at the amazing thing that's spoken there of, of his transfiguration and something of the description of that. But this is so important. They went up to the mountain to pray. Jesus took them into that context to pray. Jesus knew that they were going there to pray. That was his purpose in taking them there. There's no mention there uh, to begin with of the transfiguration. It doesn't say they went up to uh, the mountain because Jesus knew he'd be transfigured and he wanted them to see that. They went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. That too is important. The transfiguration of Jesus, uh, for his own part, took place while he was praying. Don't miss out the, the impact of that, the importance of that. It wasn't detached from his praying that his transfiguration took place. 
It doesn't say he prayed and then the transfiguration happened. It's while he was praying that he was transfigured, that his uh, appearance was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. In other words, it's really telling us, though just in passing in a way, but it's important to note it in passing, it's telling us that uh, the transformation that's needed in your life and in my life does not come about in a way that detaches that transformation from prayer. And when God has come into our lives powerfully to take hold of our lives and to change our lives, you cannot separate that from a prayerful life. When you come to the Lord and ask His forgiveness, how do you do it? You come to Him and you ask Him in prayer. You appeal to Him to forgive your sins, to accept you, to remove your guilt. When you come to the Lord to ask that He will daily guide you through the issues of the day, you do that, of course, through prayer. How is your life transformed as God works in your life, as God sanctifies you by His Spirit? Of course, it's primarily through your Spirit, through, through His Spirit, rather, that you, in your, exa- in your own uh, experience and in your circumstances, are actually transformed gradually towards the image of Christ as will be ultimately perfect in glory. But it's not without prayer. Sanctification, progress in holiness, changed into the image of Christ, dealing with your sin. For example, in in Romans you find that, that we are to mortify the deeds of the body through the Spirit. How do you do it through the Spirit? Do you just throw your hands up and say, well, I'm now a Christian, the Spirit's going to do this for me, I'll just leave it to Him? No, you pray for it. You pray against your sins. You pray that God will help you deal with the power of sin as it remains in your life. And when you come to be aware of sin, as we are daily, you come to God and you pray that God will transform you so that you're no longer as much in, uh, involved in uh, the uh, ways of sin as you know yourself to be. And that He will remove more and more of that power and influence of sin from your life. So that's <coughs> itself an important emphasis just in passing. We're not expanding on that, but I'll leave it with you because it's something worth further study. As He was praying, the appearance of His face was altered. So don't imagine tonight that any of us will be transformed, that any of us will come um, to be changed from what we are to begin with as sinners, or even what we are to begin with as Christians. Don't imagine that that's just going to take place without reference to prayer, without the practice of prayer, both privately and in a public way as well, in prayer as we share together with others in prayer meetings and praying. To God is all to do with the way in which we seek God uh, to bring a change in our life as well, onwards towards glory. So that's while he was praying it took place. But then it mentions this glory. Um, as he was praying, his uh, appearance of his face was altered, and two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. And then as you go on reading down through uh, verses 31 and 32, again you find a reference there 
Uh, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy, but when, uh, and became, when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And uh, the glory is so much a feature of the passage and of what they see in relation to Jesus. What does it actually mean? What is this glory? What were they aware of? What is Peter learning about his Lord? What are you and I learning about Jesus from this passage as you read it, as you put yourself, if you like, as far as possible, because you've got an accurate account of it in this record as if you were there yourself? What do you learn? Just imagine yourself to be there. What is this about? Well, it's primarily the glory of Christ's deity that's come for these brief moments to be manifested as never before through his humanity. It's the glory of who Christ is as God, which since he came into the world necessarily because he's there as a servant, he's there in a state of humiliation, he's there not to show the brightness of his glory, but in a way that's obscured by the sufferings, by the humiliation, by the lowliness, by the servitude that characterizes his journey through life in this world, apart from briefly like this moment. But this is not something that's given to Jesus that he never had. This is not the beginning of something that Jesus did not possess before now. This is Peter and James and John seeing something that Jesus always had as the Son of God. Remember that was one of the, uh, the titles that we saw used uh, when Peter confessed him as uh, the Son of God. And now something of the nature of what that means is brought out before him. The glory of God as it shone through the human nature of Christ. It shone through even his very clothing became dazzling white. And the whiteness of that, the description of that, and the other Gospels fits in with that one. Uh, Mark, for example, says it was whiter than any whitening process on earth could achieve. It's something unique. It's something that could not be uh, replicated. It's something that belonged to Jesus himself. It's the glory, the brightness of the glory of God, which is in the Bible always associated with the brightness of light and the brightest possible light. Because, you see, God's glory is something that we cannot really adequately put into words. And even the writers of Scripture, even under the influence of the Spirit of God, Paul and others in Scripture are really struggling for words to describe the glory of God. And it's little wonder, because this really belongs to God as an essential property of His being. He is glorious. All His attributes together combine to make Him the glorious God that He is. They saw his glory. But then you see something quite remarkable is, um, is in view as well. When you take this with you into John, uh, the great prayer in John 17, and you realize that Jesus is speaking there not only as the Son of God, but as the Son of God incarnate uh, with our human nature as well. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. And later on he goes in a few verses after that. Now, Father, glorify me with your own self with the glory I had with you before the world was. 
So you see, glory is not just brightness of light. That's just symbolic of what glory really means as far as God is concerned. When you talk about the glory of God and therefore the glory of Jesus, you're talking about status. What status does he have? Who is he as a person? That's really what's brought out for us in the glory here in which he and and, and, uh, uh, Elijah and Moses are speaking about his Deceased, his exodus, is going out. It's the status that belongs to Jesus that's really prominently held out for us, isn't it? The fact that he has the status of God himself. That he is God. That God has come into this world. God himself, God indeed, God really. In the person of Jesus Christ. He's taken our human nature and joined it to his own divine nature. And as such, he here appears and begins to show something of his glory. And there is a mystery to it because, of course, what Jesus is praying for in John 17, he's praying for as the incarnate Son of God. He's not leaving his humanity out of it. That's where we kind of get lost and where exactly this takes us in thinking about Jesus because he's not just taking the glory that he has as God back to heaven to be with the Father. His humanity also is very closely attached to that glory just as it shines here through his humanity. In other words, you cannot detach the humanity of Jesus entirely from the glory that he has as God. Now, be careful because I'm not saying that the glory he has as a human being is equivalent to the glory that he has as the Son of God. What we're saying is that the glory of the divine person that he is comes to shine through his human nature and therefore you cannot separate it from being attached to the glorious Son of God. Who is Jesus for yourself tonight? How big is he? How big is your Lord? What dimensions does he have in your thinking? in your actions, in your daily life? Is he as big as the glory of God? Is he as big as to be divine? Is he as big as to have every single property that God has that makes God to be God? Well, this Jesus does. And the Jesus in my life has to have these attributes. Or else I'm worshipping the wrong Jesus. And I'm following the wrong Jesus. And the Jesus I have, if it's less than that, is less than the Jesus I need to be my Savior. That's what the passage is saying to us. They beheld this glory. They saw this glory. And Peter is being made familiar with the fact that here is your Savior, Peter. Here is your Lord. Here's the one you confessed. Here's the one of whom you said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Why is it he alone has the words of eternal life? Because this is who he is, as well as what he has done. He is the majestic glory. In fact, Peter never forgot um, these, uh, this experience when he came to write his second letter, as we have it in Second Peter. In Second Peter chapter 1 and from verse 16, this is how I put it, um, he was concerned that those he was writing to would know what he was talking about was true, that they hadn't made it up. Now, these were not things which they, as the apostles, had made up or invented or put together as a nice story. 
We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the coming and power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by that he includes the second coming. That's what it goes on to, to speak about in, in, in the chapter, and then especially in chapter 3 of Second Peter. He's talking about not just his first coming, but how there is another coming of Jesus, a second coming in his glory, when his glory will be seen by everyone for what it is. That's what he says. We did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. It doesn't just say His glory, His majesty. In other words, it's using a word associated with royalty, and especially with the royalty of this kingship of God. We were eyewitnesses of the kingship of God on that mountain. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, you see, that's so he's putting it. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, he's putting the two words together. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we are with him on the holy mountain. And that's assured to you tonight as it was for those Peter was writing to, or those who could consult personally with Peter. Otherwise, our view of Scripture is really woefully out of place. If we believe, as we do, that this Scripture, this Word of God, this Bible is indeed inspired of God, that He has breathed it out, that it is accurate, that it's indeed a revelation of Himself, then this is true. And the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in His second coming is not a myth. It's not what the world tells you it is. It's not fairy stories like they tell you the church is guilty of telling people about and blinding people to reality. This is the truth. This is the fact. Peter tells them, I was there. I saw this. And it was nothing less than the majestic Glory, is that your Jesus tonight? Is that my Jesus? Is that my Christ? Is that the one I speak to, the one I pray to, the one I commend to others? Is my life the kind of life that really gives something of the dimensions of this Jesus to the world? Am I just like Paul was? Or am I getting near to what Paul was? I certainly not personally me at that level yet, but this is what he's saying. In, in Paul's writing to the Philippians, he is really caught between two things. To depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, or to stay for a little time longer in this world, which is beneficial for these Philippians. And I'm caught, he says, in a strait, in a tension between the two. But he says, actually, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, from this point of view, that whether it be by death or by life, that Christ may be magnified in my body. That's what we live for. That's what we live for as individuals, as Christians. That's what we live for in the life of a congregation, such as our congregation. That's what we want to actually put on display. Not a tiny little Christ. Not a Christ that people will hardly notice and bother with. I want, says Paul, to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to make Him as large as I possibly can because that's who He is. He's the one to whom belongs this majestic glory. The glory that they saw in the transfiguration. But then there's a conversation 
Secondly, we need to move on quickly. There's a conversation that took place there, right in the midst of that glory. Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, why this and why these two? Well, there are as many views on that as a number of commentaries almost that you can lay, lay hold of. Um, and it's difficult to be dogmatic about and wouldn't want to be that, but surely the key to this is this word departure, because in the Greek text of, of Luke, it's actually the word exodus. They spoke about his exodus, and Christ's exodus involved his death, followed by the resurrection, followed by his ascension. That was his exodus, which means the way out. Just as Moses led the people out of Egypt, an exodus from Egypt through to the wilderness, through to the land of promise, though it was Joshua who took them in. But the exodus meant going out. And Moses knew about an exodus. In fact, his own exodus from the world was a death on the summit of Mount Nebo, and then he was buried by God. And nobody knows of his grave to this day, is how Deuteronomy puts it. And of course, Elijah had an exodus of a remarkable kind, an exodus that really was designed by God, along with what happened with Enoch, to keep before the minds of the Old Testament church and believers that there's such a thing as not just life after death, but resurrection life, life in its fullness. They went through death without, they went through uh, uh, Exodus rather without seeing death. Uh, or rather, uh, Elijah did. And Moses was not only involved in an Exodus from the for the people out of Egypt, but his own going out of the world was quite remarkable too, the way it's described. But in any case, they are here talking about his, Jesus' departure, Jesus' Exodus. And they're talking about that in a way that here does it in his glory. Isn't that itself a remarkable thing? That in the midst of glory, that's nothing less than the glory of God, you could speak about death. You could discuss death and resurrection and ascension. But then you think, well, it is remarkable, but isn't that what happens in heaven all the time? Isn't that what eternity for God's people will be like? Isn't this what will be happening in the glory with which God's people will be glorified together? Will this not be the central topic of that discussion or of that conversation in that glory that remains yet uh, to be uh, inhabited by God's people? What is going to be the central portion of the praise and of the experience of that heaven. It's this, isn't it? Unto him who died and washed us from our sins. That's the central topic of heaven, the death of Jesus. How does he appear in Revelation as one who sits upon the throne? Yes, but what else is said about him? There came forth a lamb, as it had been slain. A lamb in its blood. A lamb newly slain. That's the focus of heaven. Christ is not in any way dead in heaven, and yet his death is central to heaven. 
It's the very ground on which we are brought in a privileged way to come to heaven and to be in heaven. He spoke about his departure, his death, resurrection, and exaltation. That's the topic of conversation. Doesn't it give you a bit of a longing when you realize that that's what heaven is really going to have as its central topic? That we're going to spend all eternity with Jesus himself around the central topic of his death, his departure, his resurrection, his exodus. And there'll be no end to that discussion. You won't have to go away after an hour and go back home. And it will not feel long because your heart will absolutely be in line with praising God forever for this very thing. They spoke about his departure, but then which he was going to accomplish. That's so important. The departure he was going to about to accomplish at Jerusalem. We all have to die. We all will die unless Jesus comes first. But our death is not something we accomplish. Our death is not a positive achievement which you associate with the word accomplish. It was, though, for Jesus. The only death that really was a positive accomplishment and the only death that will ever be of that nature. He accomplished it. He was about to accomplish. Now, when you read the word accomplish, it means something that is positively achieved, but also by way of fulfillment. Accomplishment means the end of a process that was spoken about, that was prophesied about, that was promised, and is now fulfilled. It's accomplished. And you go all the way through the Old Testament, and everything there that represents the death of Jesus, and the resurrection that followed it, and his ascension to glory, the departure, the exodus in other words, and all through these hundreds and hundreds of years, as God built up the picture, and gave more insight and more information all the way through to the end of the Old Testament age. And then there is the gap between what you find in the last uh, portion of the Old Testament and the actual coming of the Son of God into the world. And then when that comes, it's a whole new chapter in redemption. Because it involves now accomplishment. Christ has come to fulfill right through to not just some things but right through to the very death that was prophesied of and promised concerning him way back in the days of Adam having sinned against God in Genesis chapter 3 it wasn't very long before God gave the first promise of salvation and he said it to the serpent and to the serpent, of course, meant to Satan, who had come in that form to tempt man to sin, which he did. He said, the seed of the woman would bruise 
the head of the serpent. It shall bruise your head, he said to the serpent. You shall bruise or wound his heel. And what that really meant as it was unfolded and especially fulfilled in the death of Jesus, Christ came into the world to crush the head of Satan. That's what he's done. That's been accomplished. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that he came into the world to destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And all the way through the Gospels you'll find Jesus casting out demons, showing his power over demons. What's it about? He's come to crush the dominion of Satan, the head of the serpent. But in doing that, he was wounded in his own heel, which really means he had to die himself in order to crush the serpent's head. It was by death, as Hebrews puts it, that he destroyed him, the devil. And that's the death that he accomplished. Are you not thankful tonight, friends, in thinking that you and I will one day die, that going before us is a death you can call an accomplishment. Where would we be facing death if death in Jesus was not an accomplishment? If it was not a positive achievement that dealt with our sin and our liability to death and God's condemnation? That's what he achieved. All of that was accomplished in his exodus and that's what they were discussing that's what they were speaking about in the midst of this glory in transfiguration now the time has passed the third point I was going to deal with was the declaration where we can just briefly say this if you bear with me for another maybe two or three minutes Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. What was he really saying? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament again, which is in many ways a key to this, what Peter was really doing was talking about what happened on the Feast of Tabernacles. You'll find a list in um, Leviticus, <coughs> in the book of Leviticus, chapter 33, and the arrangement is very important. Look at it afterwards yourselves, Leviticus 33 where you find the, the feast or the festival of trumpets, followed by the festival of atonement, and then immediately after the festival or the feast of tabernacles. See the arrangement? Feast of tabernacles, to do with great joy, rejoicing for a whole week, comes immediately after atonement. There's no rejoicing until atonement's been made. And when atonement's been made, when the accomplishment is finished, then you can rejoice, and then heaven rejoices. And that week of tabernacles, they took palm branches, they made booths or little enclosures for themselves. That was by God's instruction. And they dwelt in them for these seven days and had great joy. They were to have great joy. They were to celebrate it. And Peter is saying, this is good, Lord. This is like the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's stay. Let's make these tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. But you see, that couldn't be. What Peter was really saying was, let's keep things as they are here, whereas Jesus is really the end of the Old Testament age, and that has to give way to him and to the accomplishment. And so they have to come down from this mountain. 
And they have to meet with, in the first instance, somebody who needs to be healed. Back to reality, you might say, in this world. The mountaintop of transfiguration is not something that's meant to last. They get a glimpse of Christ's glory. They take away with them something they'd not known or seen before. He added to their understanding about who he was. They took that with them into the descent from the mountain and into their life afterwards. But no, the Feast of Tabernacles cannot actually remain. Not appropriate anymore. It belongs to the Old Testament age. And this is the new. This is in Jesus. They have to leave things of the Old Testament behind. And you see, that's why it says that um, when the, uh, the, the cloud came and this, the voice came out of the cloud, when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. The Old Testament figures had gone. Moses and Elijah, yes, they spoke about Christ's exodus, but they were Old Testament figures. They didn't belong to the New Testament age, though they had looked towards it, and now they had gone from sight, and they saw no one but Jesus only. That's what their focus was now drawn to. Not Moses, not Elijah, Jesus only as to emphasize for them, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. The cloud here is associated with the cloud and the tabernacle and the holy of holies, associated with again the glory of God. That fits in with what we said earlier. And a voice came out of the cloud, the voice of the Father obviously, this is my son, this is my chosen one, listen to to him. Moses had himself prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 that the Lord God would raise up for them as a people a prophet like unto me. To him you shall listen. That's what is taken up in the book of Acts as a prophecy about Jesus and that's what's fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And this is what God said from the cloud. Listen to him. Why listen to him? Why to him only? Because he alone is the Savior, the God-man, the Messiah, the Deliverer. And that's why it's said against verse 23, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, let there be a death to sin, to self in your life if you're truly going to be a disciple of Jesus and be like him. Listen to him. You know, it's a solemn thing. Let me just finish with this. It's a solemn thing that a lost eternity can be over something so simple as not listening to Jesus not really taking in the words that he speaks to us from the gospel. Just before Christmas, when we were down in Livingston for a week, I had to pick something up from the shops and had to pick it up as a large item. I had to pick it up uh, before the shops actually opened. 
and that was because I had to go in with the car into uh, one of the service bays where lorries and vans come to bring stuff to the shops. And what you do from there is you have entrances down underneath the shops and Livingston Shopping Centre is a huge area and as you go down underneath the shops as you go through as I did through that opening and then looking for the uh, door to the shop, the, the door underneath discovered very soon there's nothing here but corridors they're all exactly the same huge concrete corridors and they're just in all directions and all the doors that you can get to that lead to the shops and to the shop uh, um, storage areas they all look the same and then the alarm went off a really loud alarm went off and I really genuinely panicked because you're underneath everything and as the alarm went off the doors in these corridors automatically closed for fire protection. And I thought, if this is really a fire, nobody knows I'm in here, I'm done for. And unfortunately, over the tannoy came the announcement, this is not an emergency, it's just an exercise drill. And I thought to myself, well, why didn't you say that first? It would have saved a lot of heart pounding. But you see, the thing is, it reminded me of something very important when it comes to God's judgment that's what it will be like for some we could have sat here in this church many years and yet come to the judgment of God and the door will be closed in our face and if that was frightening as it was for me down below all of these shops in these concrete tunnels how much more is that going to be the case for those who have not listened to the voice of Jesus? The doors will close. Fortunately for me, as I pushed these two doors that I came to, first they just opened. They weren't locked. And very soon I get, got some steps and up onto the shopping area. There's nothing like that in eternity. When the door closes against us in Christ's judgment... It will be locked and it will never open again. It's open now so that when you listen to the voice of Jesus it won't be closed against you when you come to meet with God. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity once again of being under the instruction of your word, of being together as worshippers of your name. We pray your blessing to follow all that we have deliberated upon, all that you have spoken to us about from your word this evening. Hear us now, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now let's finish tonight uh, by singing to God's praise in Psalm 72. Psalms, Psalm 72, verses well known to us. Psalm 72 in the Scottish Psalter, page 314. Um, and the tune this time is Effingham. We're going to sing from the middle of verse 16, the four verses to the end of the psalm. The city shall be flourishing, her citizens abound, and number shall like to the grass that grows upon the ground. His name forever shall endure, last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in him and blessed all nations shall him call. Let's sing these verses through to the end of the psalm.
let me get to the main door, please, after the benediction. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen.